All right, if you would please stand for the reading of our word. Our passage today is from the Gospel of John. So if you have a Bible with you, I I would ask that you take the moment to turn there. I'll be reading the first 18 verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. May be seated. Well, welcome again and Merry Christmas. We are in our fourth of our five messages in the series It Will Be, which means the fifth one's tonight. So don't forget Christmas Eve, 5.30 p.m. this evening. But It Will Be has been the sequel to our series this fall on the Lord's Prayer where we saw that the Lord's Prayer was Jesus' vision for it to be on earth as it is in heaven. And so we uh, contemplated what it means for it to be on earth as it is in heaven by going through each of those petitions. But the Lord's Prayer leaves a question begged. How will it ever be on earth as it is in heaven? As we recognize the perfection of heaven and the corruption and fallenness of this earth, how will the two ever be reconciled? And so that is what we have spent this series of Advent on, to focus on the doxology of the Lord's Prayer, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. And what we are seeing in that doxology is the answer to how it will be on earth as it is in heaven. Because Jesus came, we can say to the Lord's Prayer, it will be. And so we have gone through each of uh, these phrases. We've given a sermon to, for thine is the kingdom, where we saw that the kingdom of God, God brings his kingdom through Jesus taking on lowliness. We saw that God brings his power through Jesus taking on weakness. Last week we saw that God brings his glory 
through Jesus taking on dishonor. And this week, this morning, we are going to look at that next word, forever. Today, we focus on the word forever. And we are going to discover that that God offers us three eternal gifts by his eternal son becoming mortal. We experience the forever of God because God's son took on our mortality. One of my favorite stories for Christmas, my favorite movie, there's many different versions of it, is Charles Dickens' The Christmas Carol. And probably my favorite of the three spirits, unsurprisingly, is the ghost of Christmas present. He shows up in many different versions, but he is always a larger-than-life, jolly, happy, exuberant character that comes to just spread goodwill and happiness everywhere. So exuberant is the ghost of Christmas present that even Ebenezer Scrooge gets a bit drunk on his jolliness to show us what a, what a, a full life Christmas can be, what great joy exists in Christmas present. But there's something else that comes about as the story of the ghost of Christmas present plays through. Before long, he is aged. He has become an old man in the span of a single day. And we discover that the ghost of Christmas present passes from the world forever as soon as Christmas Day is over. And so the ghost of Christmas present, I believe, reminds us of two realities about our condition as humans. The first is we are meant for joy. We seek happiness. We never have enough. I have never met a person that says, that's enough happiness for me. I don't want any more. Turn off the spigot. Indeed, in our heart seems to be an appetite, a longing for an unlimited and endless joy. I believe that may be part of what Solomon was speaking of in his book on Ecclesiastes, that eternity is placed in our heart. We have a desire, a longing for something that exceeds any confinement. But the second reality is that our lives are short. We are here for only a little while. Time marches forward. And as it does, we are slowly but surely passing away from this world. The Bible says this matter-of-factly. In James it says, You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. How many Christmases do we have? How many Christmases do we have? The law of averages says you have 79. Subtract your age, and that's the number of Christmases, on average, you can expect. But I wouldn't count on averages. There are many people who do not reach the average. Some people exceed the average, but regardless, 79 Christmases. That's the average. That's the number of Christmas days that a a human being usually has. That's not that many. That's a, a pretty small number. Christmas brings the whole year, really our whole life, into focus. 
Christmas brings to the front the fact that we have expended another year of the precious sand in our hourglass, never to be brought back. Christmas Day, as joyful as it is, races through, doesn't it? We start Christmas Day with all the excitement, all of the activity, but it seems like the hours are half as long. And we get to the end of the day, and we are battling melancholy because it comes and goes so quickly. More, the time between Christmases seems to be picking up speed as we get older. Christmas Day seems to follow Christmas Day as we get into our later years. I don't have that experience that my children have, that when will Christmas be here? That Advent candle, or that Advent uh, calendar is seeming to be ripping off pages at a frenzied pace. The point is that our mortality casts itself over everything, even Christmas. Every single one of us has a limited number of Christmases. Every single one of us is a mist that will vanish. And that is something that Christmas makes us confront. But the good news is that the true meaning of Christmas offers an answer to that mortality, an answer to that sense of futility. For at the heart of Christmas is a message of hope to all mortals. The message of Christmas is that God has given us a son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So this morning, the last Sunday of Advent, let us focus on the true meaning of Christmas by looking at that first chapter of John's Gospel where we are going to discover three eternal gifts that God offers us by His Son, the Word becoming mortal. So if you have your Bible with you, please follow along with me in in John chapter 1. In contrast to how I do my usual sermons where we go verse by verse, I'm taking the 18 verses kind of in totality and pulling out uh, major themes that exist in this passage. So let's look at it now. Three eternal gifts God offers to us by the Word, His Son becoming mortal. First, by the Word becoming mortal, we know the truth of eternity. We know the truth of eternity. Look at verse 18. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. What we learn in the beginning of the Gospel of John is, the na- is first of all, the nature of the word that has been given to us. We see that, that the person that we confess, Jesus Christ, isn't just a witness to God. He is a revelation of God. He is called the Word of God because, like the Word of God, He fully expresses the person of God. The book of Hebrews tells us very clearly in verse 3, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Paul tells us in Philippians, or I'm sorry, in Colossians, that the fullness of God dwelled in Jesus. What is meant by this is that Jesus Christ is God incarnate. He bears fully the image of God because 
He is fully God, taken on flesh. So what we have when we meet Jesus Christ is an image of the eternal God. It is because he took on flesh. It is because he took on humanity that we are able to look at Jesus and see exactly who God is and what God is. He is not a philosophical argument. He is not something in the halls of Socrates and Plato to contemplate abstractly. We are shown that the eternal God is a person, a person that we can know, a person that can know us. And that makes the knowledge of God, the truth of eternity, an entirely different proposition than a philosophy class. Because it says, the scripture says, do you want to know there is a God? Do you want to know what God is like? I am not going to give you arguments. I'm going to give you a person. Spend time with Jesus Christ. Bring him your thoughts, your questions, your strivings, your concerns. Experience the person Jesus Christ. Do that with an honest and open heart. And you will know not only that God is real, but that you know God in Jesus Christ. I have shared a few times my testimony. My testimony did not come from an evangelist, at least in the ultimate sense. My testimony started with me saying, I have to read the Word. I have to spend time making up my own mind about who Jesus is. And I can tell you that if you spend day after day with an open heart, questioning, seeking for truth, who is Jesus? The Bible will not lead you astray. You will meet the living God. You will meet the Word made flesh. And it was because I was meeting the person, Jesus, and all of his fascination and all of his truth that all of my objections and resistance to the gospel could not uphold. And I said, he is real. He is true. I want to know him. And that is the first thing we discover, the nature of the word. By knowing him, we can know God truly. But even more, we can know God. That's the fascinating thing about Jesus becoming the word, becoming the flesh. He is somebody that we can know. We can know God through the word. But second, we see the nature of the word. The second is the, the truth of the word. We, we know that Jesus Christ is the Word, and that truth is profoundly important to our lives. First of all, as I, as I suggested just a moment ago, spending time with Jesus and His Word gives you what I can only describe as the ring of truth. You spend time with Jesus, and you experience the ring of truth. What I mean by that is like a riddle. A riddle is, a, is an interesting conundrum, a, a system of phrases that can only be unlocked by understanding the right word. It has to be solved. And once you have the solution, the riddle makes almost sublime sense. Here's an example of a riddle. I'll give you a couple. 
What is light as a feather, but even the strongest man in the world could only hold it one minute? Does anybody have a guess? That little boy right there. Breath. Breath. Those boys are smart. They must have a pretty brilliant dad. Very good. Breath, yeah. What is light as a feather? Breath. But even the strongest man in the world could only hold it one minute. Second, what can travel the whole world while staying in a corner? Come on, somebody else besides the super handsome boy back there. A stamp. A stamp. You put it in the corner of a letter, it can go all around the world. All right, last one. The man who invented it doesn't want it. The man who bought it doesn't need it. The man who needs it doesn't know it. What is it? Sarah, a coffin. A coffin is something that the man who invented it doesn't want, the man who bought it doesn't need, and the man who needs it doesn't know he needs it. A coffin. But do you see how a riddle works? All of those phrases that just don't seem to be able to be harmonized or made sense of, when the answer to the riddle is presented, it all clicks. It all says, wow, that is true. That is exactly the right answer. No other answer has the ring of truth that the right answer to the riddle has. And I contend that when you encounter Jesus Christ in your scriptures, that he expresses the ring of truth far more exceedingly than any riddle. He is the right answer. He solves the enigma of humanity. He solves the enigma of the Old Testament. When you come across Jesus, you just have to admit it's right. He's right. That's what a person should be. That's what goodness is. That's what righteousness means. He is the solution to the riddles of the Old Testament. How will the love of God and the judgment of God be reconciled? It is a question that the Old Testament raises and propounds again and again without resolution. It is only with the revelation of Jesus Christ where the love of God and the justice of God are perfectly reconciled By the cross. How are the promises of God which are conditional and the promises of God which are unconditional come together? Sometimes we see God's people facing certain judgment because they failed a conditional promise. But then another time we see there's an unconditional promise that seems to uh, war against that. How do those two reconcile? They are reconciled in the person of Jesus Christ who meets every conditional promise of God so that in him we may have the unconditional promises of God. Even more, as we look at the, at the situation of humanity, every single one of us struggles with the balance between bravado and kindness, or strength and tenderness, truth and grace in our lives. We all seem to err one side or the other because we seem to be built unable to hold that balance. But you go through the Gospels and Jesus is always bold and always tender. Shockingly, at the exact same time. He has the ring of truth. He is a note that we have never heard before him or since him. 
But it's the right note. It's the aha of what a perfect person would be. He is both wholly unlike anyone you have met and exactly as he should be. What I am saying is when you spend time in the Word of God, especially studying the person who is the Word of God, you say, I can't find an argument against him. He is unimpeachably true and righteous and good. That's a fascinating person. But moreover, not only does he have the ring of truth, we have the fact of the resurrection, the truth that he is the resurrected one. The one who was promised to become flesh as the word of God is also the one who was put in a grave and rose three days later. He is the resurrected one. What does that do for us? It requires us to face head on that Jesus is the sole authority of the reality of the world above. By him, we know that there is life beyond the body and that we live under God. The fact of the resurrection means that death is not the end. You will have to make sense of a life after this one, and the one who gives you authoritative understanding of that world is none other than the Word made flesh, the resurrected one, Jesus Christ. Consider these words that Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter 10. He says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Think about those words. If those words came out of any mouth other than the Son of God, what would they be? They would be blasphemy, they would be insanity. The person Jesus is saying, I will determine, based on whether you acknowledge me, whether the Father will let you into heaven. If you don't acknowledge me, I will say you don't belong here. If you do acknowledge me, I will welcome you in to the presence of my Father in heaven. Who can say that and not be lying or crazy except for Jesus? the one who says he is the Son of God. We have to consider what C.S. Lewis says about Jesus. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall flat on your feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Do you see that the gift of the truth of eternity that comes through Jesus Christ is a gift that forces us to make up our minds. Who is Jesus? There are two considerations as we think about the gift of the word. First, the seriousness of this fact, and the second is the assurance of this fact. Think of the seriousness. The words of Jesus must be decided. 
If you do not know him, you will not be known by him before God. There is eternal consequence. God sent his son into the world because there was no way to heaven apart from him. And if you refuse Jesus Christ to know him, to believe in him, to call him your Lord, then you have shut the only door to heaven. You must grapple with who is Jesus. Have you made up your mind? Again, how many Christmases do you have? How many Christmas mornings do you have before you are called home or called to your judge? Second, because Jesus is the Word of God made flesh, what great assurance do we have when we put our hope in His words? We have the testimony of God's Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Those words are vouched by the eternal word of God. Those words stand in the courtroom of God. You believe in Jesus Christ, you will not perish, but have everlasting life. What assurance do we have that we have that word from the eternal word of God? So that was number one. By the word becoming mortal, we know the truth of eternity. Now let us look at number two. By the word becoming mortal... We experience the joy of eternity. By the word becoming mortal, we experience the joy of eternity. Look at the second part of verse 14 especially. He dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father. I want to say a little bit about the word's joy. The word's joy being the person, the word, and his joy. First, in verse 1, we see these words, he was with God. In the beginning, he was with God. The Son of God, the one who came and dwelt among us, has lived in eternity past with God. That idea of withness obviously stresses that the Son and the Father are distinct, but also same. This is an articulation of the Trinity, that we believe that there is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But more than just explaining the Trinity, it is explaining the profound relationship that exists between the members of the Trinity, most especially the Son and the Father. The Son and the Father are with one another. They are together. They are close. They know one another. They have been side by side in a relationship from eternity past. There is between them an eternal perfect relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Verse 18, which in the ESV says, who is at the Father's side, could potentially or probably be translated even better that he is in the bosom of the Father. Some of your translations say it that way. That the Son is in the bosom of the Father. That means that the relationship that Jesus has had with the Father from eternity past has been that the Son has been perpetually laid upon the heart of his Father 
bringing great joy, great comfort between the two of them. They experienced perfect joy, delight, peace, and belonging between one another. They and them alone can express the perfection of love. And is love not, as, I, as you think about it, the greatest experience that we have in this world? We all want love. We all want to give love. We all want to be increasing in love. Love is the perfection of joy. Just this morning, I was holding my nine-year-old who uh, spends a little time every morning just on my lap. It's one of the most special times of my day. And I was reflecting with him that he is about to celebrate his 10th Christmas. And I showed a picture of him on his first Christmas as a little baby. And as we were looking at that picture together, I said to him, You know, I loved you in that picture as much as I could possibly have loved anybody. But also, ten years later, I love you so much more. I love you more every day than I did the day before. My love, which I think is as great as it can be, continues to grow. Now take that experience of love to the infinite. Take it to eternity. The reason that God has given us eternal life is because it will take an eternity for us to grow in love, to reach the love that the Father has for the Son and that the Son has for the Father. And He has given you an eternity to grow in the experience of perfect love to him and from him. Between the Father and the Son is perfect love, receiving and returning perfect love, always. And so when we think about the word becoming flesh, we don't only hear of the words joy, but we receive the gift of joy. This joy that the Son and the Father share has been brought to us by the word becoming flesh. In verse 14, he, we are told he dwelt among us. Literally, the word there is he tabernacled among us. He was the perfect meeting place between God and man, the perfect mediator. So those who come to Jesus not only experience perfect communion with God, but God, through Jesus, experiences perfect communion with us. Through the gospel, the joy of heaven is experienced, and the eternal communion that is between the Father and the Son opens up to us opens up to us. Listen to Jesus' prayer in the 17th chapter of John. I'm going to read verses 13, verses 24, and 26. Jesus says, Now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have 
joy fulfilled in themselves. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Look at that phrase, the love with which you have loved me may be in them. The gift of the gospel is that we will be able to love God with the same love that the Son loves the Father. And the Father loves us with the love that He loves the Son. This perfect, eternal love that is the root and the spring of all joy that lasts for eternity is opened to us because the Word became flesh. When Jesus was baptized, God's love broke through the heavens. And He looked down at His Son and He said, This is My beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Do you know what is so remarkable about the Gospel? Is that when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The Father from heaven looks down on you and speaks with the same exultation. You are my beloved child, and I am well pleased with you. All the love that the Father has for the Son, when you are in the Son, the Father has for you. My joy and love for my son every morning, which fills my heart, is but a whisper of the love that God has for you in his son, Jesus Christ. What a joy that has been offered to us because the word became flesh. What is amazing is that this This love is so wonderful, it it, it literally takes Paul, the apostle, out of words. He says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. God's love for you is so big, you have to take it on faith. The biggest, most wonderful expression of love barely opens the door of what God has for you who are in His Son. It is the perfect Christmas, and it never ends. That is the joy of eternity that the Word becoming flesh has offered you. Now third, by the Word becoming mortal, we receive the life of eternity. And now let us just focus on those words in verse 14. The Word became flesh. The Word that became flesh is, first of all, the Word of life. Verse 4 says that this Word, in Him, was life. He is the Creator of all things. In Him, 
is life. He is the fountain of all existence. He is eternal life. And because He is life, He came and manifested the fullness and the blessedness of this life. I believe that is what made Him so attractive. One of the Beatitudes is, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Every day of Jesus' life, He was perfectly pure in heart. He lived with the fullness of the beatific vision of seeing God's love for him without dimension or end. He manifested the fullness and the blessedness of life because God shined on him like he shined on no one else. And that made him so attractive, so compelling. And then we are told that the word of life was made flesh. The word made flesh. Flesh. Why flesh? Is there no other way to show us joy? Is there no other way to tell us truth? I imagine that there are. I imagine that if God only wanted us to know the truth of eternity, only wanted us to know the joy that he has in eternity, there could have been another way. But for him to give us the gift of the life of eternity, the word had to be made flesh. Why? Because flesh is killable. Flesh is killable. He became mortal ultimately to become killable. He was made mortal to taste and swallow down gulp by gulp the full horror of death. His death is beyond any of what we can imagine. We are told that on the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one whom he was in the deepest well of joy and love and communion. The one alone, who has been the eternal one with God in the bosom of the Father, becomes in the flesh God-forsaken. Completely estranged from any intimacy with the Father. He experienced dereliction. There was a moment on the cross, there was a moment when the Word was made flesh that perfect love was plunged into total wrath. Listen to these words from Paul. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5. Words that I hope you have underlined in your Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For our sake, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The beatific vision was broken because the righteous, holy one was made horrendous sin so that we could be made righteous. Listen to this explanation from the theologian McLeod. No one was ever less prepared for such an experience than Jesus. As the eternal word, he had always been with the God. As the incarnate son, the father had always been with him. They had gone up from Bethlehem to Calvary like Abraham and Isaac together. But now in the hour of his greatest need, God is not there. When he most needs encouragement, there is no voice to cry, This is my beloved son. When he most needs reassurance, there is no one to say, I am well pleased. No grace was extended to him, no favor shown, no comfort administered, no concession made. God was only present as displeased. The paradox should not escape us. He was sinless. He was the Son of God. But there on Golgotha, he was a sinner. He was sinned. He was sin. He is damned and banished with the effect, as Calvin describes it, that he must also grapple with the armies of hell and the dread of everlasting death, suffering in his soul the terrible torments of a condemned and forsaken man. He was the scapegoat. He was outside in the outer darkness. He was beyond the cosmos, the realm of order and beauty, sinking instead into a black hole which no light could penetrate and from which in itself nothing benign or meaningful could ever emanate. This is the dereliction. This is the cost of the Word becoming flesh, becoming sin for us. Why? Why? This was done that we might receive the gift of life. The gift of life. Jesus died outside of the Lord so that none of us have to. More than that, he was raised so that we can know him and have his life. He spoke the week before he was crucified, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? You see, the word made flesh tasted the full horror of death so that you do not have to. But the word was not left in the tomb. The word was raised to life. And in him, the sting of death, the fear of death, has been crushed 
so that all who say, yes, I believe in him, the resurrection and the life, do not face death like he faced it, but face death as the place where he welcomes you immediately into the presence of himself and the Father and the Holy Spirit. The good news of Christmas is not the story of a cute baby or a young family trying to make a nursery out of a stable. It is that the Word of God, the eternal Son, became flesh and dwelt among us. Why? The Word took on flesh that He might save us, that He might save us from the darkness of our ignorance, that He might save us from joylessness and despair, that he might save us from the sting of death and the torments of hell. The word became flesh not just to save us from these things, but to bless us beyond description. Because he became flesh, we receive the gift of truth that we can know God and be known by God in a loving and unbreakable relationship. Because he became uh, flesh, We can receive joy and give joy that has no end and no limit. Because he became flesh, we can live in the beautiful presence of our creator and our redeemer forever and ever. If you are here and you recognize that you have never truly believed in the good news that the word became flesh, that he dwelt among us, that he gave his life for sinners, that we might be with him for eternity then I plead with you, put your faith in him. Trust in him as Lord and Savior. These words are for you and they are true. John chapter 1, 12 and 13. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Finally, let me conclude with a question for all of us. What sort of Christmas are you celebrating tomorrow? The one that ends at the strike of midnight? Or the one that is only a small taste of the everlasting celebration of heaven? I'm asking you, make your Christmas about Jesus. Let us make Christmas about the gospel. Pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, again, we stand beneath your word, we stand beneath your gift of Jesus, and we are humbled. We again have to realize that if the word became flesh to be killable, then how sinful And desperately wicked is our heart. Father, if there is anyone here who has not come to know Jesus Christ in a saving way, to confess him as Jesus and Lord, to believe that he died for sins and rose from the dead, Father, that you would leave that person restless, that you would leave that person convicted that he would turn, that she would turn to the truth, to the joy, and to the life that comes through your Son, Jesus Christ.
Father, I pray that we, as we leave Christmas Eve and go into Christmas morning, that you would make our Christmas about Jesus. Let it not be about our wallets. Not let it, don't let it be about our cooking or our homemaking or about the number of presents we have, but make it about the gift of truth, joy, and life in Jesus. And so we pray, as your Son taught us to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.